Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, as we continue our journey into our returning to the sacred, I had a thought that you know, Isaiah prophesied in, in chapter 5, verse 20, that there would be a time when good will be called evil and evil will be called good. And I was thinking about that, that I think maybe everyone has maybe said that during the course of humanity that maybe things were better when they were younger maybe things are just always getting worse um but uh, i guess the benefit of growing in age is that you can kind of see that you can say you can't you can't make those distinctions you can you can say that well things were different at this time versus it, it is now and so when i look at now and i see that some things are taken to be normal behaviors, things that we just knew were just objectively evil, just maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. I just wonder, do you, do you see that same thing? And, and what commentary can we make about what's happened in the world or what's happened in the church, what's happened in families and society that that has us at this, this point that even Isaiah talked about? Yeah, so I mean, this this is nothing new what's going on now i mean think about what saint paul said he talked about this crooked and depraved generation and even our lord jesus christ in mark's gospel talked about this adulterous and sinful generation they could have been talking about right now you know so the the, the problem is today i think david is that the more we've gotten away from god uh the, the more confusion uh, has come into the church because that's what the devil does He's there to, to bring confusion and doubt into the minds of, of, faith, of the faithful and of believers. We saw this in Genesis 3. Uh, he lied to, uh, uh, to Eve, and, and both Adam and Eve, and he said, you will be like God. You don't need God. You're your own God. And the more that we've done that in our culture, the further we've gotten away from the Lord. Now, you said there were things that were considered um, objectively evil, intrinsically evil 10, 20, 30 years ago. Well, guess what? They're still intrinsically and objectively evil. <laughs> that hasn't changed. What's changed is the culture. And when I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about some amazing parallels between what's going on now and what happened during the Babylonian exile. So remember in, uh, uh, in talking about Daniel's chapter, in Daniel chapter one, it says that um, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and um, uh, he invaded Judah and uh, took uh, King Jehoiakim and the Israelites uh, became slaves, right? He besieged it and became slaves. Now, why did God do that? Think about it. The Israelites were the chosen people. They're the ones chosen by God to be the witness and example of covenant relationship with the Lord to be that example to the rest of the pagan generations around them. Uh, so they, they were supposed to, so the Lord chose Israel and Israel was to show the rest of the nations, this is what relationship with the Lord looks like. But instead what happened? They began to adopt the ways and the thinkings uh, of the pagan nations around them. They became too comfortable and too friendly with the pagan cultures. And they began to adapt pagan ways of thinking and pagan ways of life. Well, guess what, David? The same thing is happening today. We Catholics have become too comfortable and too friendly with the pagan cultures around us. 
we've adopted secular ways of thinking and living. And so basically God is saying, look, um, if you don't want to place yourselves under my loving care, uh, and you want to turn toward pagan idols, fine, go ahead. Um, then I'll let Babylon rule over you. And, and that's what's happening in our culture today. It's, it's not enough to believe in God. We must believe God, right? And, and, we, and we see what, what are the results of this way of thinking in the church? You know, we've been, for far too long, we've been filled with a spirit of apathy and embarrassment about sharing our Catholic faith. What do we do? We keep it to ourselves. We keep it contained within the walls of the church. And then when we're challenged by our friends and loved ones about why we're Catholic, what do we do? We cower like frightened children. We put like we pull the blankets up over our head because we're afraid of the dark. And then we wonder why 69% of Catholics don't believe that Jesus Christ is present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist before the pandemic. So, so that means it's got to be worse now. You know, when the culture tries to shove subjective truth down our throats, you know, uh, what do we do? We worry about being politically correct. We worry about people's feelings. And then we wonder why more than half of the people that come into the church through RCIA leave after five years. You know, when unborn children are slaughtered and marriage and gender are so-called redefined, it's kind of like upside down day. You know, we used to do that with the kids when they were smaller, right? Like, have breakfast for dinner and, and that kind of stuff. It was like backwards day. Well, that's what's happening in our culture now. And then we wonder why the median age, when a young person makes an intentional conscious decision, I am no longer Catholic, is 13 years old. So they've effectively left the faith before they even left their parents' house. Th that's, that's where we are today. And so when we, again, the more we turn away from God, the more we place ourselves under the, the rule of the culture, the more we, uh, confusion and separation, division we find even within our own church. When the children of Israel knew that Moses went up to the mountain, right, they, they, I think they had a sense that something sacred was going on there. They had every, every reason to believe that this is something's going on. The, the same God, God to deliver them, um, provided for them, is now calling the person who led them up. And at the same time, they seem to want to be, so this is sacred going, something sacred is going on around them. Yet they choose a golden calf. Is, is, that, what we're, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, see, what happened was, he, now how long was he gone? He was gone 40 days, right? That, that number 40 shows up a lot in the scriptures, right? 40 days and 40 nights in the ark. But Noah, uh, Israel wandering 40 years in the desert, uh, Isaiah, um, oh, sorry, uh, Elijah uh, walking around the desert for 40 days, um, Moses getting the Ten Commandments for days, David, when, when he showed up to fight Goliath, that was day 40, Jesus, before he starts his public ministry, 40 days in the desert. That number 40 for the Israelites is the number of gestational weeks in a pregnancy. It represented a time of trial and testing and waiting because after 40 days weeks months years god is gonna do something the problem is israel was impatient they're impa he was gone he was gone too long see sometimes we just have to wait on the lord all of us are frustrated what's going on um in our world today and quite frankly even in our church look what's going on with the german bishops and the synod and all this stuff 
And it's it, sometimes it's easy just to get cynical, to be impatient. Um, but we have to wait on the Lord. Why? Uh, God works in his time and God's timing is always perfect. It's not our time. But we have to wait and trust in the providence and in the goodness of God. In the meantime, we have to pray. We have to fast. We have to remain faithful to the teachings of the church, no matter what is going on around us. Even when there's confusion in the church, we have the catechism, right? We have the scriptures. We have the, the sure norm and foundation for the teachings of the faith from which we can't deviate. This, this world needs witnesses, right? Martyr, the word martyrdom, martyroi in Greek means witness. And we need witnesses. We need martyrs today. Yes. Now, many of our brothers and sisters are being martyred in India, in China, in a number of countries in Africa. They're, they're dying rather than deny Jesus, just like the, the martyrs did in the early church. So he's not asking all of us uh, to be martyrs in that way, red martyrs. But a lot of us have to be white martyrs or dry martyrs. You know, we have to put up with the persecution that's happening in our culture today. You know, um, David, I spoke at a Catholic school last year and um and i and i was fooled i went into this this okay catholic school so i was supposed to preach at the mass which i did um and this was for this was a talk to middle school students so i went to mass and i noticed that during communion most of the teachers did not receive communion so i thought oh uh, i thought at first okay well maybe um uh there wasn't time for confession first before mass or something like that uh and then afterward I, I gave the talk to the kids and the look on the kids face were like their eyes were wide open their mouths were open i'm like oh boy they've never heard truth before you know uh and then after the talk the kids were all clapping like when are you coming back but there were some uh, i got some but i got some emails from some of the teachers and some of the parents that were there were some of the most degrading uh disrespectful correspondence I've ever seen in, in over 20 years as a, as a deacon. Um, they, they hated the truth. It was demonic, quite frankly. Um, uh, and so when things happen like that, you know, you're like, what, you know, sometimes you just have to quit. What am I doing this for? You know, but, and when I went to prayer about it in adoration afterward, I said, you know what? The Lord just said, keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about that. You know, um, uh, my son carried the cross. He fell. They beat him the whole time. They mocked him the whole time. He just picked up his cross and he kept going. And he goes, I need you to do the same thing. So um, that I think that's that's what's happening in our culture today. We, we need Catholics to stand up and to bear witness to the truth, even if it means we're going to lose friends, even if it means we're going to lose even family members. What does Jesus say in Matthew's gospel? If you If you love mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love brother and sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you do not pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. You know, I mean, everybody wants to focus on the teachings, Jesus is love and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus also teaches some hard truth and realities that we need to think deeply and seriously about as we continue to engage this culture. You talked about the further we get from God, the closer we get to confusion. And, you know, we can look at that in a household the church and also, we, I guess, the household or the family. Some of the some of the, some of the things, same things are going on. I, I think I want you to comment on, because I know when you were, about the time you were, um, probably getting your your master's degree, 
and theology, it was about the same time that the sex abuse crisis in the church would have won early 2000s about the about to start. What a what a confusing time that was for a lot of the faithful. And what a confusing time it is for some of the faithful now when they're hearing these things that may happen at the Senate. We you know there's a lot of scary talk. We no one really knows yet, but it doesn't look great. For, you know, it's not some. You know, some people have invi- been invited. That we're like, wow, that's that seems scary. It's confusing. Why? Why was that person invited, but not this person? So there seems to be confusion in our household or the church. I think it's it's, it's well documented, well commented on. But what about the family, Deacon? What's going on in the family that's confusing right now? Yeah, that's a great question, David. And, you know, here's the thing. When God first wanted to establish a relationship with his people, um, how did he do it? Through the family. You know, there were six covenants in the Old Testament, and and the final covenant was the seventh, right? Seventh is the number of perfection for the Jews, right? Seven days of creation. Uh, And the seventh one was, of course, Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross, was the the new and eternal covenant. But the first one was the Adamic covenant. Uh, covenant with Adam uh, and Eve uh, in Genesis chapter one and two. So what did he do? He established the covenant through the family, mother, father, children. Why? Because the family on earth is the image and likeness, right? Genesis 1, 27. We're in the image and likeness of God and God himself exists as a family, as a communion of persons, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And so the family on earth is the image and likeness of the, of the family in heaven. Of course, only by analogy, right? We can only speak about uh, God and our relationship with him by analogy. And so the family is the foundation, is the foundational instrument for society and for culture, is the family. So goes the family, so goes the church. So goes the church, so goes the culture. So what we need to do is we need to take some steps back. We need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and really imbibe a biblical worldview of what it means to be a family. Uh, God said male and female, he created them, right? The woman in, in, in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2 narrative, uh, the woman comes from the side, just like the church is born from the side of Christ on the cross, the woman comes from the side of Adam in, in, in creation. Um, and the love between the two of them generates a third, right? Children who give so parents give love, life, intimacy, and communion to each other in that beautiful, sacrificial, conjugal act, um, in a sense, which is a Eucharistic act of communion, um, because the deepest form of intimacy we can have with God on earth is the Eucharist. Re- uniting his body with ours uh, is the deepest form of intimacy we have with God this side of heaven. Now, in Genesis, of course, there's no there's no Eucharist, there's no Christ, <laughs> right? But the conjugal act, it says, therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh, right? So the deepest one flesh union is the Eucharist. But in Genesis 2, the, the one flesh union is the conjugal act. So we can say, uh, in a sense, right, in a sense, that the conjugal act is a Eucharistic act of communion. That means that that beautiful conjugal act is sacred and it's holy because it's a participation in the life-giving power of God. So look look what's happened in the attacks on the family. Look what's happened. We have contraception. 
We have abortion. We have uh, confusion about gender. We have the demasculization and feminization of the man, right? Who is the head of the family. And he's the head of the family because he's the chief servant of his wife and children. And so when, when, when those roles get, and that was what Satan's do, it's demonic. He's attacking the family precisely because he's trying to destroy covenant relationship with God. So if you're going to try to destroy covenant, covenant relationship with God, you must destroy the family. And who's he going after the family? Who's the biggest target? Women. Why? Because they're the life givers and the life bearers. They participate in the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that we pray every Sunday, credo et spiritus sanctus, dominum et vivificantem. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Women participate in the life-giving power of God in a way that we men can never fully understand or appreciate. Our job is to serve, protect, and defend that beautiful heart of love. But when roles get confused and family gets attacked and men forget who they are and women try to be men, or try to take on masculine roles, everything gets confused. And so we're seeing confusion in the family, which is no surprise that we're seeing confusion in the culture, uh, in our church. And then because we're confused in the family and in the church, we're having tremendous confusion in the culture. And you mentioned the sex abuse scandal before. Um, that led to moral, uh, uh, we, we, a loss of moral credibility uh, in the church um, throughout the world. I mean, look what happened in Ireland. Ireland used to be a Catholic stronghold. Now, um, they're one of the, the, the least Catholic countries in the world. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's sad and it's tragic what's happened. Um, so we have to return to, uh, to rebuild the family, to return to a sense of ourselves, to reunite ourselves with intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion with Jesus Christ and the Catholic faith. And, and we need people that are not afraid to do that. Yes, when we do that, we're going to get, man, we're going to get persecuted. We already are, you know, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's okay. Um, but the more we stand up, the more that the, the devil's going to back down. He, he's having his heyday right now because not enough of us are standing up firm and, and, and solid in our faith. So men, we need to come back to ourselves. We need to, uh, you know, it says in the Bible that we're put in the garden to till and to keep it. Abad and shamar in Hebrew means to serve, protect, and defend. So when we get back to our mission, right? So uh, the, the stronger men we have, build strong men, we have strong families. We have strong families, we have a strong church. We have a strong church, we take back this culture. In scriptures, they talk about, Jesus brings us up as well, but we first see it in, in Genesis where... You know, Adam sees, you know, Eve, you know, he's like, well, at last, this one, this one at last. And, and then it says, the text says that for this reason, um, he leaves the houses of his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. And I always thought that was like such a, like a rich word, like cleaves. That's, that's weird. You know, what's the last thing I cleave to, right? That was, it's, it's intense, right? Um, and I was wondering if you could dig more into what you were speaking about, about the role of men and family in that regard, like this, this intensity that a man should have for his, his beloved. Like, I don't, I don't know, it's, you know, I'm only 51, but, you know, I look around and, you know, just from observing, right, it's just, 
I wonder, is that that intensity there, like it should be the cleaving to the wife, just this this holy jealousy, like, you know, God says, you know, I have nothing God's before me, you know, I'm a jealous God. It's this, this, this desire to want to be everything, um, just a sacrificial love, this cleaving. Can you talk about that? Like, what's some attacks that's going on? Um, what are some of the struggles that men have? Uh, you know, there's pornography out there. All, all these these things that's coming at men that, that may be blocking them from just that intensity that he should have for his wife. Yeah, a great question. So um, in that verse in Genesis 2, it says uh, man cleaves. And it's actually the word is daubak in Hebrew. It means to pursue as to overtake. So literally what, what it says is man leaves his father and mother and pursues his wife. And the idea there is, is that when he reaches her, he puts her behind him and says, if you want to get to her, you have to come through me. That's the idea there. So, so remember, it's the fulfillment of his mission and his role as servant, protector, and defender of everything God is entrusting to him in that garden, including his wife. So yes, she's his equal. She comes from his side. Uh, Selah in Hebrew means side. So yes, she's equal in dignity before God. There's no question about it. But his job is to protect and defend the very heart of love. And the problem is in Genesis 3, when Satan uh, comes into the family and he goes after the woman first, right? Why? He's the author of death. So he goes after the one who gives life. He stood there and said and did nothing while Satan destroyed his family. He said and did nothing. The problem is, David, today we have so many men who are also doing nothing while Satan is undermining our spirituality as men and our families right from under us. And look, what does 1 Peter say? The devil is like a roaring lion prowling about, waiting to pounce uh, on someone. And what does he attack? The heart, the mind, and the soul. Right. So how does he attack the heart? Right. If we look in first Samuel, first uh, Samuel 16, we see the call of David. And um, so when Samuel goes to the house to anoint the new king of Israel, uh, Jesse lines up seven of his eight sons, uh, Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, but not David, because David's just a kid. He's out. He's a shepherd out there with the sheep. Um, and uh, so. The Lord, Samuel goes to the first son, Eliab, he goes to pour the oil of anointing. The Lord says, no, not him. And and so when Samuel says, what's going on? What does the Lord say? Do not look on the height of his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart, right? The heart is the seat of the will. The heart is the place where your desire for God lives inside of you. Because for the Israelites, they, they attributed different bodily functions to different um, functions of the spiritual life. So the stomach was the source of life. Uh, the right the, the right arm was a, was a sign of strength. The heart was the seat of the will, the place where your desire for God lives inside of you. The the liver was the the, the, the center of emotion, right? I mean, so... So what does he attack? He attacks the heart. He attacks a man's heart, right? Um, and, and so uh, how does he attack the heart? Uh, destroy the, his ability to be able to protect and defend his wife. Contraception, the separation of life, love, intimacy, and communion. Pornography. I mean, it literally 
destroys a man's heart. I have letters from men, even young men, as young as 22, 23 years old, saying that they no longer desire to have intimacy with the real person because all they want now is the porn. And 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 and, and it's a, and they're both. It's funny. Two different men from different two different parts of the world sent me sent me letters, emails, and they both said we don't know how to love. We don't know how to love contraception porn. And what did they? And what did those both those both uh, fuel human trafficking, a multi billion dollar industry? And, and speaking of that, look at the pushback on the movie. You know, uh, uh, now you would think that people be glad to have a movie that goes against human trafficking. But there's this pushback from people that don't, I'm like, are you, out of, what? this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Um, so he's attacking the heart. Then he also attacks the mind, right? You're not really, a, a man does, is not a real man. A, a man is uh, like what the Gillette commercials, the best a man can get. They lowered the bar mentally for men. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be intelligent. You just, look, look at the way we're portrayed on television. We're idiots, buffoons. Look at situation comedies, Disney, television, whatever. I mean, I watch that crap anyway. But, but if you look at how we're portrayed, we're idiots. No one takes us seriously. They have all these women looking at how we're portrayed on television, and they settle for less. Well, as long as he doesn't hit me. It's like, no, you need a man who's going to take you to heaven. That's what you want. A man is willing to literally die and give his life for you. That's what you want. You know, the heart, the mind, and the soul, right? So men don't go to church. Why? Because football's on on Sunday. You know, there's all these other things going on besides their spirit. They never pray. They never pray with their spouses. And they wonder why their sex life sucks, why their marriage is horrible. I mean, so again, the, the, the devil attacks the heart, the mind, and the soul. So when you're weak in all three areas, you're going to have weak men. And those weak men, David, are not just in families. They're also priests. Priests are men uh, who are husbands of families in the parish. Those same weak men who are husbands in the domestic church are also those same weak men who are fathers in the parish, in, in, the, in, the, in the, of the church of the family, uh, the family of the church. So, um, you know, so it's, this is not just something for, for husbands and fathers. This is also for priests and even for men who who are single, you know, so um, we, we really have to restore. And that's why I wrote my book, Behold the Man, you know, to really help men to really recover themselves, uh, to rediscover who they are, who they were created to be by God, not allowing this culture to dictate um, to our men who they are, but allowing God to give me my identity as a man. And while you were speaking, and um, I just got a couple more, two more questions for you. And this one, as we can, um, as you give us your catechesis here on how we return and rediscover the sacred in our lives, this thing came to mind, Deacon. It was, um, as you're talking about men and the man puts the woman behind him, he protects her. I don't know why, but the Blessed Mother Mary just came to mind. And I was thinking, you know, along that same line, like, what have we lost along the way? I think one thing that we lost is just using, considering our Blessed Mother Mary as um, in her life, considering her life and what the sacredness and how God used her and how she pursued the sacred. I think there's a lot that lot to say there. And I was so sad the other day. I was speaking to these two Protestant ladies and, you know, I was trying to be patient with them and, you know, and, you know, try to 
get into their issues and things like that. And at some point in time, their, their language just really turned against the Blessed Mother Mary. Like, why do you Catholics do this? Mary is more special than anyone. You know, all that, all that rote stuff, all the, you know, stuff we, we've heard. But, you know, and I, and I could hear myself as I'm speaking to them starting to get angry, <laughs> you know, start to, you know, get kind of hostile, even though I was trying to be even tone with them and not, not, you know, turn them away really fast. But, but I think uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that. Like when we talk about re returning to the sacred and we consider our blessed mother Mary and everything else that you, you said so far, can you give us something, talk about something here that kind of pull these things together for us in context of the blessed mother? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, 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 and you're getting angry and rightly so someone talks about your mama, you you're going to get upset. You know, I don't, don't blame you. Uh, but, but here's the thing to think about so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters miss this. Um, remember we talked about how the Satan went after the woman first, right? And the husband's supposed to defend her. He didn't do it. And so the Lord set up right in Genesis three, that very same chapter, the path for salvation. And he does it in Genesis 3.15, often called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So first of all, the word enmity there is ebau in Hebrew, which means literally hatred. Uh, so literally in Hebrew, if you read it, it says, I will put hatred between you and the woman. Now, um, I think the translators thought that was too strong of a word, so they put enmity, which means opposition to. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, how do, who is that woman that's being spoken about there in Genesis 3.15? Now, when you, when, at first glance, you would think, well, that's Eve, because why? There's only one woman, right? There's Adam and Eve and a snake, the devil. That's it. What other woman could they possibly be talking about? But how do we know for 100% sure that that woman is actually not Eve and that it is in fact pointing toward the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's three clues for me. First of all, number one, the punishment involves two people, but God is only talking to one of them. So remember, this is the, this is the punishment that, that's given to the serpent. By the way, this, the word serpent there is nahash in Hebrew, nahash. It means monster. So sometimes we think of the, the you, know, you see mid, mid, medieval art with this little garden snake wrapped around a tree. No. This is this is a monster. It's also it's translated like in Isaiah, um, uh, in Ezekiel as Leviathan. You know, um, it, it's the, it's the same way. So it's a monster. And so um, so this is the punishment for 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 the for the Nahash for the serpent. So he says. Uh, so the punishment involves two people: this serpent that God is talking to, and this woman. Now, if the woman was Eve, why wouldn't he be talking to both of them? When he's issuing the punishment so for example when my twins um were younger like they were like four we had a rule no ball playing in the house right because often in oregon in the winter it rains a lot and so uh you know we said you, you play in the house do whatever you want but don't play ball so i was upstairs and i heard crash and i run downstairs and a lamp by the television falling over on the ground broken there's the twins and there's the ball on the floor so I look at them. Who did it? They're pointing at each other. He did it. She did it. He did it. She did it. Who would I punish? Both. So in Genesis, 
3, 15, if the punishment involves two people, why is only God talking to the snake? Right? Because when that prophecy comes to fulfillment, between him and the woman, between her seed and, 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 and uh, his seed, um, the snake is going to, where is that fulfilled? At the foot of the cross. The serpent is the only one that's going to be around to actually see it come to fulfillment. So that's my first clue, that the woman there is not Eve, He's only it, it, that it's pointing to Mary. That's the first clue. Second clue. It says, um, it says the woman, not Eve. It says the woman. Now, if the Jewish people want this, so, so in Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, there are no superlative words. So they don't have words like the greatest, the best, the most. So what they have to do is they have to do one of two things. They, they add a prepositional phrase. So, for example, in 1 Timothy or Book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Or even in the Magnificat, blessed among women, right? So, and that means you're the most blessed of all women. Uh, or they said something three times, right? So we steal that at Mass, right? The Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. So let's count. Number one, at the wedding feast of Cana, uh, they ran out of wine. And Mary goes to Jesus and says, son, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what is this between you and me? Now, at first, that sounds disrespectful. And hey, once say, hey, mom, you know, or something like this, woman. Now, now, if you look at that in context, like um, if my if my wife says to my son, Benjamin, clean your room. And Benjamin says, woman, what is this between you? Oh, man, he's in trouble, right? <laughs> he's in trouble. You know, but that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that the Blessed Mother asked her son to do something supernatural. So he's referring to her by her supernatural name, woman, referring back to Genesis 3.15. Second, the foot of the cross. Who does Jesus give care of his mother to? John. And how does he do it? Woman, here is your son. There, Mary is the archetype for the church. What Jesus is doing, he's giving care of the church to the apostles and, and symbolized by giving care of Mary to John. Again, refers to her as the woman. The third one, most obvious one, even Protestants can't argue with you on this one. Uh, Revelation 12, one, the woman with the uh, crown of 12 stars around her head, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, who's pregnant. Oh, come on now, that's Mary. So wait, how many times? Woman, 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 three times. That's my second clue. Third clue and biggest clue, and uh, put enmity between your seed and her seed. Now, who provides the seed in the relationship? The man. But clearly in Hebrew, it says her seed. I only know one woman who gave a complete and perfect human nature to her child without the assistance of the seed of a man. And that was, you guessed it, Mary. Right. So so clearly there. And what, so what why is God setting it up like that? He, what he's showing the devil is this. You used a woman as a vehicle to bring sin into the world. I'm going to use the most blessed of all women as a vehicle to bring salvation into the world. You went through the heart of love um, to, to bring in to bring in death. I'm going to use the immaculate heart of Mary as a vehicle to bring life into the world. You know, so, he, so he's undoing what Satan did. You, you, you use the family. I'm going to use the holy family, right? So it's it's actually beautiful. 
Uh, and when we think about Mary, she's also the first monstrance, right? Monstrare means to show. That, that was the word that they used for a woman who was pregnant. She was showing. And that's the word we use now for the monstrance because Jesus is there in the center of the monstrance. He's showing himself to us. So she was the first monstrance. She was the first vessel that held in the tabernacle of her womb, the body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus. So Mary is critically important. And our love for Mary, look, what, what a man really desires, David, he doesn't want pornography. He doesn't want, want contraception. He doesn't want abortion. You know what he wants? He wants the monstrance. He wants what Joseph had. Every man wants that. I, and sometimes I do this with teenagers, right? I'll, I'll go to a school and I'll be talking to high school and I'll say, guys, here's a chance to embarrass me in front of everybody else here. If, uh, if you came across a girl who was promiscuous, right? And you came across a girl, uh, you know, uh, a, a different girl who said, I don't want, I'm not going to do anything with you. I'm going to, I'm saving myself for my husband, for a man who's willing to die for me. Which one is more attractive to you? And every single guy says the second one. He said, well, wait a minute, the second one, what are you talking about? You know, from the culture, you would think that everybody wants the first, the promiscuous girl. No, because in his heart of hearts, every man wants to serve, protect, and defend. That's his very nature built by God. He wants to put her behind him. You want to get to her, you want to come through me. The more we align ourselves with the teachings of the church, and, and, and uh, the founding example of Christ, the more we're going to uh, see men who are truly men, who are truly husbands, fathers, leaders, like you said, David, who are willing to die. We have to see ourselves as living our spirituality from the cross of Christ, right? That's why we have crucifixes as men, right? As Catholics, we, we know Christ is not on the cross. He's at the right hand of the father, but we know that most of life is the cross. We have to see ourselves there. Just as Christ broke himself open and poured himself out in love, we men have to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out in love for our families, for the church, and for the culture. And one last question. It's a short one. And I don't know if you've, you've thought, thought about it much at all, but oftentimes think about it myself. Your last lecture, or let's say your, would you say to your children if you had the opportunity to have them around you and like give a final blessing towards the end of life? Like right before you receive the Vatican or something like that, or your last lecture. What's your topic? I mean, what do you, what's the most important thing you've learned in your life that you want to pass on? Yeah, you know, um, I will follow the example of King David. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we see David on his deathbed. And his son Solomon is standing before him. And he's giving his last instruction to his son. So he says, be strong. He goes, I, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. But he just doesn't say that. He, he, he continues. He goes, keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances. Right? So, so that uh, as is given to us in, in the law of Moses, so that you may never fail. So, and, and, and David also understands that he's not going to see his grandchildren. So he knows that this message is not just for you, for his, his son standing in front of him. It's also for his sons and his sons after that and his sons after that. Um, he says, if you keep charge, if you, if you do these things that I'm telling you, there will not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. 
So my last instruction, my kids would be like David, follow the ways of the Lord, follow his holy Catholic church, follow the teens. No matter what is going on around you, you stay close to the Lord. You stay close to the church. You stay close to the catechism. You stay close to the scriptures. First John 4, 16 says, God is love. And he who lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. And a few verses later in verse 19, it says, perfect love cast out all fear. Uh, the word teleos there, or talmim in Hebrew for, for um, perfect, doesn't mean without fault or error, right? Because nobody can do that. It means mature, whole, and complete. So I would want my children to be mature, whole, and complete in their walk with God, to always follow the teachings and the ways of the church, no matter what is going on around them, all the distractions, all the uh, all the contradictions, even within the church herself, even if they see contradictions within the church herself. You know, my, my book on uh, Catholic response to racism is about to come out uh, pretty soon. Uh, and in that, you see the contradiction. You see, even though the Vatican said over and over again, Pope after Pope says slavery is evil, it's sinful, don't do it. We have uh, American bishops and, and, and religious orders who said, well, we're going to do what we're going to do anyway, despite what I mean, so even when you see contradiction in the church herself, you still stand strong and firm in your faith in Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, thank you so much for your catechesis and your instruction in how we ought to pursue and return to the sacred. Thank you. You're most welcome, David. Thank you for having me. <laughs>